Welcome to Office Talk, a fortnightly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leading architects about their approach to business, marketing, and communications. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, an architectural marketing expert and director of Office Dave Sharp, a marketing practice offering specialized consultancy, marketing, and PR services tailored to meet the particular needs of architects. Visit officedavesharp.com to learn more or follow the practice on Instagram at officedavesharp. This episode was sponsored by ArchiPro. ArchiPro showcases the best and latest in the architecture and building industry and helps to connect homeowners with trusted trade professionals and products that will suit their needs. For architects and designers, ArchiPro helps you to create a profile for your practice in a way that best expresses your brand and your work, and then it directly connects you with a niche audience of people on their architectural build or renovation journey. Many architects rely on word-of-mouth referrals or search engine traffic to find new clients, but it can be difficult to attract the people you really want to design for and work with. That's why ArchiPro helps clients to match their specific architectural taste and budget with the right architect or designer for their project. You can also use the platform throughout the design and build journey with your clients by directly sharing inspiration and sourcing products for your projects as well. So if you'd like to find out more about ArchiPro, visit www.archipro.com.au. Joining me on the show today is Jeremy McLeod from Breathe Architecture, one of Australia's most awarded sustainable architecture practices. Jeremy is also the co-founder of Nightingale Housing, a not-for-profit organisation building apartments that are socially, financially and environmentally sustainable. In this episode, Jeremy and I spoke about why Breathe has continued to double down on their sustainable design positioning and why Jeremy believes you really only need to speak to 1% of the market to attract a high volume of values-aligned clients. We looked at how Breathe adjusts their message for their different client segments, from developers to homeowners to superannuation funds, based on the unique needs of each group. We spoke about why every big organization has at least one champion for sustainability and the unexpected places architects can find them. Jeremy shared why a major setback with Nightingale in 2015 that left him crying on the bathroom floor turned out to be the project's biggest marketing breakthrough ever. And finally, we looked at the opportunities Jeremy sees for architects to engage with society's biggest issues, from electrification to reconciliation, to increasing the share of homes delivered by architects beyond 3%. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jeremy McLeod from Breathe Architecture. So, Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Uh, let's start off with a little bit of a background on Breathe uh, up to kind of today as well and what you guys do these days, but maybe a little bit of, um, give us a little bit of a history on Breathe and sort of the when you started the studio and yeah, give us the overview. Yeah, look, I might give you warts and all, Dave, because some of it's embarrassing, you know. Okay, so. good stuff. Let's do it. <laughs> um, so, look, I studied an undergrad in environmental design. My parents were hippies, social activists, you know, so, you know, I cared deeply about the planet before I went to university. I went to Tasmania to study um, and felt incredibly connected to nature and landscape down there. I came back uh, in the 90s at the end of a recession and worked at SJB under Charles Justin, where he taught me how to run a feasibility, and under Alfred de Bruin, where he taught me how to work effectively and efficiently. And then I went and worked at Catsalitis for four years, and then Catsalitis became Nation Fender Catsalitis, which then went on to be Fender Catsalitis. I learned a lot from Nonda, 
and from Carl about, you know, and I watched that practice grow from eight to 50 while I was there in four years. It was really interesting. And, and I got, I got to admit, I felt like I wasn't being able to be my best self and wasn't being able to bring all the things that were important to me about sustainability to the table then. Perhaps I was just an arrogant young graduate that just should have been stuck in the corner drawing stairs and toilets. But so I left Catsalitis or I left Eofender Catsalitis and started my own practice and I called it Breathe Architecture and the idea was that every room would have a window, um, pretty simple, and that we would only do sustainable work. And the first few years of my practice, Dave, I tried to make everything sustainable simultaneously, like everything right down to the kitchen cabinets, trying to recycle everything. And in trying to do everything, I, I feel like I did nothing well. So, um, you know, lots and lots of time making buildings incredibly sustainable. But, you know, if you stood back and looked at it, it was a bit of a mess, to be totally honest. And it was hard, you know, and it was hard to take clients on a journey. And back then when you Googled Sustainable Architects Melbourne, there was six of us, you know, and now, you know, it's a much more, you know, obviously it's much more pressing now. I think it's always been pressing, but I feel like that sustainability now is not such a tough pill to swallow for people. And so I think over the over the course of, you know, of our practice, Braids, I started with just me and then I started to kind of bring one person in every year. I realised the importance of messaging day, which is probably why you and I get along so well, that if you can't communicate a clear idea, a big idea and a big message that can be delivered upon easily or in bite-sized chunks, then you can't get a client to take that on or you can't expect a counsellor to accept that and believe that. So I think I've learned a lot from trying to do everything simultaneously and not having a clear narrative and then not having a clear building out of it to actually doing the really big important stuff and really embracing the idea of progress over perfection. Yeah, I think I've come on a long journey since the start. And I, and I, you know, I sometimes really regret, you know, like ever leaving, you know, practices like uh, SJB when I see what Adam Haddow has done at SJB in, in Sydney, um, you know, like that young gun, incredible, and what he's doing in the sustainability space in a much bigger practice. Or ever leaving Fender Cats Leaders, seeing what, you know, Nanda and Carl have achieved and the team at Fender Cats Leaders that are left behind. And I see them now doing kind of, you know, incredible work. Yeah. I guess like in terms of that stage where you started to not focus on doing everything and sort of work out what those more clear moves would be, both in the building and in business and all of that sort of thing. How do you think that ties into the communication? I guess like coming from where you were before, what were you what were you finding was difficult? There weren't obviously that many people, as you said, in the sustainable design, sustainable architecture space. So you'd think that just by being there, it would have made sense to people at that stage or you would have been able to find kind of clients <laughs> through just being one of the six Melbourne sustainable architects, even if your messaging was a little bit rough around the edges. But but do you, I guess like what was that point where you felt like it started to click and make sense and, and what were you doing kind of differently at that stage? Yeah, there was massive demand for sustainable architects, but sustainability in 2006 was still seen as very niche. It was seen as a hippie endeavour. It was seen as you needed to be part of a tribe, you know. And so people's view of sustainability in 2006 was like a mud brick and rusty corrugated iron. And so the kind of the cohort that were after that, you know, it wasn't um, it wasn't local government trying to build a new library. It was a school teacher in Footscray trying to renovate the back of her house when she didn't have enough money and she was 
bottling her own sardines or preserving mm. her own sardines and she wanted to pay part of the bill in sardines. That's a that's a real example, Dave. Of the, so we had lots of clients that wanted to pay in sardines, <laughs> not, not in cash. All right. So um, so the, so the lots of demand, mm. but um, perhaps not the right demand to have. Uh, yeah. You know, to be able to scale a business or to be able to work in a viable business. So, um, so the so I guess that was one thing. And yeah. then I think the other thing is, you know, doing renovations back then. We, it was still the view, and back then, back in two thousand six, mm. for all you young architects listening, the view was that you did a building, you did it well, you finished it, you photographed it, you interviewed the clients, kind of a bit of a postdoc, and then you published it. Mm-hmm. So it was like a three-year kind of program to get to the point where you finish the project, you could photograph it, publish it, and then go and get more work from that. And we were doing renovations, a lot of renovations in the back of houses in Fitzroy and North Melbourne, uh, you know, and so they were very, you know, you couldn't see them unless you were standing on the roof of a car looking over in the back fence. So they weren't they weren't particularly visible. And so I think that... It wasn't until we started working on more visible projects. Mm. So there were a couple of turning points for us, I guess, and um, and also working on uh, like so a hospitality project um, or a retail project. The the opportunity to have a really clear idea and to be able to communicate that, I think that they're the things that we saw as you know being able to communicate clearly who we were and what we were trying to achieve, and that anyone could achieve that. And you didn't have to be, you know, wearing Hessian pants to bring us on to be an architect. Mm. It is interesting. So you were talking about these sort of private, these fairly private, inconspicuous projects, the the little residential alterations, additions, that sort of thing. And you didn't feel that it was really getting out there because they weren't so visible. There wasn't a clear idea. The public wasn't paying attention to those sorts of projects. So, so moving into the hospitality and moving into the larger scale, did that essentially address that problem? You found that once you started moving into that, that more public category of work, that now that people started paying attention a little bit more just because of the scale, but also that ability to get an idea out there. Yeah, look, I mean, that was definitely the case in 2010. I mean, it might be different now with social media and different communications channels and, and being able to talk much more publicly publicly about much more private space. But back then, yeah, uh, you know, working on a couple of cafes and a roastery and a little retail store, you know, it kind of changed the trajectory for our business because it made us much more visible and it kind of opened us up to a totally different type of residential client, for example, with a different mindset. Do you think that between sort of 2006 and then the years after that, did the market kind of change organically and catch up to where you were at and at the pointy end of the industry on sustainability? Do you feel like they kind of got up to speed with you guys or do you feel that the way that you approach things maybe played a role in sort of influencing the way people looked at things? Uh, do, do you kind of take, do you think you guys had an impact on that to a degree? I mean, look, interestingly, you know, some of the books that I was still referring to, you know, like Warm House, Cool House, you know, books by Michael Mobbs, you know, these were books written by, um, you know, Australian architects back in the 1970s about how to do sustainable housing. And I feel like that's somewhere between, you know, 19. 19- 75 and 2000, those really simple skills about passive solid design kind of, they kind of got lost somewhere. Mm. And they've definitely come back now, but there was a while there where that disappeared. So no, I don't, I don't, I don't think the market changed much between 2006 and 2010 or between 2006 mm. and 2016. I think that generally the, the appetite 
for consumers, for the rest of the world to actually act on issues around climate change and sustainability and take personal responsibility for for their carbon footprint and their emissions. I think that people started to realise that you could do that. And if you think about brands like Patagonia, building an, an incredibly successful international brand of a triple bottom line, yeah. you know, approach where they talk about having incredible quality product, being close to nature, but also being able to do it without feeling guilty, you know, without harming the planet. And so I feel like the consumers changed a lot in, in those 10 years. And so, you know, historically having a conversation with a residential client about, you know, the choice between a water tank and a marble bench top, you know, the marble bench top would win every day of the week. Yeah. And whereas if you have that conversation now, you might find that the water tank will win, you know, nine times out of 10. And in fact, the National Construction Code will tell you that the water tank wins now. So it's easier now because as building regulations have definitely changed, um, that we have, we now have energy efficiency standards, water efficiency standards, all the things we never used to have. So mm-hmm. the things that we were pushing, you know, and our clients were taking on are now largely mandated through mm-hmm. the National Construction Code or through the planning scheme. So I, I definitely think in the last 10 years, so probably 2015 till now, we've seen massive change. And I feel like that that now, you know, we used to be market leaders in sustainability, yeah. whereas I feel like now, you know, that that can't just be, you know, our unique position now at Breathe, you know, we have to stand for something more. It's, you know? it, it is an interesting and probably takes me to another topic and then we'll come back to some other stuff we touched on before. But in the way that you position the brand at the moment, even the sort of tagline on the website is Australia's most awarded sustainable design firm. And it's yeah. very much at the front and centre, all of the language around the brand. And I think you've, you you kind of are putting breathe in, in in the niche that it's sort of known for you're just you're accepting that niche and going this is generally what people know our studio as we are seen as kind of the leaders in this area but i'd be interested in getting your thinking around playing into that niche and that position and that reputation versus going the other approach that's often sort of thrown around of, oh, well, you know, sustainable design, it's now sort of integrated into everything that we do as architects. So we don't really need to kind of you know, draw it out or point it out to directly, we can just sort of be architects and sustainability is just sort of a part of it, you know? So I guess what's the sort of the thinking or the strategy behind going, yeah, we still describe ourselves as a sustainable design firm and we really have sustainability. So, you know, directly front and center in the branding. If you think about Patagonia as a brand, some of their designs are kind of weird, daggy, you know, like woodsman's outfits from the 80s. Mm. And they've got some really good, you know, other pieces in there. But the thing with Patagonia is that they don't try to catch 90% of the market. All they do is that they care deeply about what they do and how they do it. And their values are so strong that they'll take the clients or the market that wants to go with them on that journey, but they're not prepared to walk off that path to increase their market share. The fascinating thing about that is that they've become a multi-billion dollar company standing by their values. So what's been interesting for me to watch Patagonia is to say that, you know, you can you can stand by your values and what's really important to you and you can run an incredibly successful business and you do not need to talk to 95% of the market. You might only need 1% of the market that actually wants to come on that journey with you. And what you get from that is a values-aligned, ideally, a values-aligned customer or a client that then makes the journey together so much easier, right? Mm. So you so you don't you don't you don't have a values clash as you're trying to work through the project. And to be totally honest, I would rather ride around, you know, working for Deliveroo 
than to do a building that I'm ashamed of mm. or to leave the planet in worse shape than what I what I came into it as, you know. So for me, it's a pretty easy proposition. And interestingly, for Breathe as a business, if you talk to our staff, they would all think about the same things. They want to be mm. proud of what they're working on. So we have incredible staff retention. We've got incredible yeah. kind of quality staff um, because we all do something that we're proud of. So there's kind of all these other benefits, you know, kind of doing what what you think is important and doing it. Yeah. And then lastly, while I say there have been significant increases or improvements in the National Construction Code, you know, in Australia we're still about 15 years behind the UK and about 10 years behind the US. So, you know, we're still not measuring whole-of-life carbon. We still have no plan in place in Victoria to get to net zero emissions by not even by 2050, not even by, not by 2030, but not even by 2050 currently. Mm. Yeah, I feel like our work here isn't quite done. Yeah. Yeah, I can just, I sort of imagine that there, there are many studios out there and I've had lots of conversations with them that have sounded something like this, which is where currently our values are really, you know, let's say sustainability, but we only really have the sardine paying clients at the moment. And we don't think we're ever going to make the jump to that better client that we're looking for. So what we need to do is sort of dilute the messaging, soften it, broaden it out a little bit so that it'll be more kind of palatable to an audience that we sort of see as not caring maybe quite as much about sustainability, but just enough that they'll hire us and be a good client. But we're not going to scare them off by having too extreme of a position because, you know, we think that that only gets you know, hippies or whatever. And that's sort of this, um, this mental model that I think sometimes people have when they, they're at that beginning of that process. But I think, you know, the way you're describing it is if you, if you do dilute it, if you do sort of wash it all and make it nice and generic and acceptable to everybody, then it's just going to be another sort of not interesting, pointless brand that doesn't really say anything. Right. Whereas you're talking about going really focusing on that narrower 1% of the market share. Yeah, yeah, correct. But also, Dave, you know, whatever you do, you've still got to nail it, right? Of course. But back to your point about mainstream clients versus niche clients, I actually, you know, agree totally, right? So I'm on the, you know, the National Council Institute of Architects and we're constantly talking about architects only delivering 3% of housing in the country and the rest are done by volume builders, developers, uh, draftspeople. So architects actually have very little say in the housing outcomes of this country. So I think that it's really important that architects actually engage with every sector of the country. And, and, and architects should be mainstream, like it is in Spain. It shouldn't be seen as only for those with millions and millions of dollars and only for, you know, the top 5% of our socioeconomic society. So, yeah, I think it's really important that we talk to everyone. And I think that we change our messaging depending on who we're talking to. So when we're talking to property developers, we talk to them about the operational costs of a building, the energy efficiency of the building, the long-term savings for them by using robust materials they don't have to replace every seven years. And so we talk the language that makes the most sense to them or if they're getting funding from a superannuation company mm -hmm. or from someone that's after some good ESG principles, then we know that sustainability will form part of how they're securing their funding. So we know for them that they need to tick that box and we say we will handle that for you. And so the important thing for us is saving the planet and building a great society and a great city to be part of. Um, the important thing for a developer is they're happy to do all of those things, but they have to return on their bottom line. So those two things aren't mutually exclusive. Mm. So we just make sure that we, we use the right messaging for different people. We, there's no point 
singing from a different hymn book, you know, to a property developer. Makes sense. Which of those different groups or audiences that you speak to, do you think the ideas that you're putting out there as a, as a practice actually resonates with the most? Because uh, is, it, is, it, is it the developers? Is it the, the big sort of finance and investment stuff? Is it, the, is it the private homeowner? Like who do you think is kind of the, at this stage the most receptive audience for, for what you guys are doing and, feel, and you feel is sort of backing you the most at this point? Well, I mean, obviously we've got a houses team led by Maddie Saul yeah. and most of the people that come to work with Maddie and Francis, like they're people that have a lot of values alignment around sustainability. And if you looked at the private list of our clients, you would see some people in there that you'd probably recognise their name who have kind of been influential in Australia in kind of making significant headway into sustainability in the country. And mm. so they see us out and so they're great clients for us. So that's good values alignment. I guess, you know, we do a lot of housing. I mean, it's really interesting working with uh, a social housing provider like Aboriginal Housing Victoria and for them they want to deliver on sustainability, but they've got a massive kind of ad hoc funding issue for them. Like their, their funding is sporadic and ad hoc. They've got massive amounts of people on their waiting list. Mm. So the sustainability, they love the idea of it, but they literally don't have it, don't have an allowance in their spreadsheet for it. And so that their most pressing issue is housing First Nations Australians. So when we tell them, don't sweat it, we can handle sustainability effortlessly within the current cost plan, they're incredibly relieved, right? So there are a bunch of people that really want to do it but can't and they're often the organisations like the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre or Aboriginal Housing Victoria or Housing Choices, the people kind of working right at the edge, right? And then we've got property developers doing housing and, look, the great thing about property developers is that they want a unique selling proposition. They want to say, well, what what are we bringing to market? How do we make sure that people want to buy our apartment building in Brunswick or in Fitzroy? Who is our market? And then you kind of look at the socioeconomic breakdown, so well-educated people, left-leaning in their politics, you know, care about the planet and society and have the money to be able to pay for that. So, when we've got a sophisticated developer, it's pretty easy to work with them about saying that sustainability is a core part of their market share. And so we talk about that. So making sure that the value proposition, it's not just about how much the building costs, but it's also about how much they can sell that for and who their market is. So that kind of works. And then the last one is kind of, you know, aspirational clients like a, a local government or a university that, yeah, want to kind of set a new benchmark. And usually... Dave, you know, there'll be a champion like uh, Alex Kennedy at the University of Melbourne that cares deeply about sustainability. And, you know, when she's working on the new student precinct, she wants to make sure that not only is that exceptional for the students, but also that it kind of sets an aspirational benchmark for all of those people coming through to understand about their role in society and the potential impacts that they can have on climate change. So there's often champions in those organisations. What yeah. I do find, though, is that those champions in those organisations, they have a short lifespan. They either get headhunted or they get burnt out because it's really hard working in yeah. those organisations to be a champion, but it often takes a champion on the client side to make, particularly in a big organisation, to make an exceptional project happen. Yeah. 
Interested in those champions. How do you reckon they come across Brave primarily? Is it is it any sort of one area that tends to stand out to you guys? I'm guessing it's got something to do with the events that you're involved in and the way that you're kind of... I'm guessing it's more of the Jeremy standing in front of a crowd giving a talk stuff than the <laughs> social... And, you know, doing doing interviews and, and possibly even, you know, causing, you know, controversy in the AFR or something like that. I feel like that's yeah, probably yeah, yeah. where they pick up yeah. on you first, right? Yeah, I mean, it is it is interesting. And those champions, right, they're people with inherent bravery. They're in a big organisation and they want to make change from the inside and I think they can do it from the inside. I've got so much uh, respect for them and they often go out and work in the private industry where it's easier, right? Yeah. But you're right, I'll be speaking at the Green Building Council Open Day or, you know, I'll be speaking at the All Energy Conference about how easy it is to electrify everything or whatever that is. Mm. And they've been told by their organisation forever, you can't possibly electrify hospitality. How is that possible? And I'll, you know, have a five-minute slot in a whole day and talk about how that's possible. Or I'll take a speaking gig at the, what is it, like the Body Corp, the Body Corp, no, the Strata, the strata Titles, uh, I don't know, there's like a yeah. national conference for like Strata Title Lawyers and Owners Corporation Managers. And um, I get this offer to go and talk and I'm thinking, wow, that sounds really boring. And then I'm like, wait a minute, these are the people that actually set up the governance models for all of, the, all of our apartment buildings across the country. I'm like, what an incredibly important and overlooked group of people. And so I go and speak to them about the importance of electrification and how easy it is to build an embedded network and buy in 100% green power and your residents get cheaper power and no carbon footprint. And, like, I get a standing ovation <laughs> from a bunch of, like, strata title lawyers and owners court managers and they're like, whoa, that's incredible. And then within that there'll be obviously, yeah. you know, people that work at the local council. That's right, Dave, and that's where you meet them, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's strange where you meet your champions and often it's not where you expect. Mm. Like I don't run the social media at Breed. That's not, that's not my thing. Yeah. But a friend of mine, Trent Custers, who runs a game company called League of Geeks, said to me, you know, he's incredible, this guy, like build a game company in Melbourne out of nothing, with a, literally with a whole bunch of geeks just kind of, yeah. you know, crowd crowdfunding their time together to build this incredible game, Armello. And I said to Trent, how did, how did you build like an international games company out of nothing? And he said, omnipresence. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what does that mean? And he just said that every time he had an opportunity to speak, he said yes. Yeah. It's a bit of a topic change, but I, I sort of sometimes feel that the younger studios are actually quite traditional in their approach. I think that they're quite sort of behind the projects, you know, letting the projects do the talking, you know, relatively anonymous directors. They don't they don't write, they don't public speak, they don't put very much of a point of view out there. I don't know. That's it's hard to generalize across the industry, but you might see a different side because you sort of rub shoulders with architects that are sort of in the same pathway that that kind of breathe is on. What do you think? Do you sort of see that other side a little bit more frequently? There's yeah, I mean, look, you know, Aaron Roberts and you see like the beautiful work that he does and how, you know, quiet and yeah. humble he is. So it, what, what works for Aaron, right, is that he just does beautiful work and he waits for people to come to him. Yeah. And yeah, he, does, he doesn't need to go out and talk about it. And I guess, you know, the interesting thing about architects is that if you were to walk around the studio at Breathe, 80% of them are introverts, you yeah. know, and they want to practice their architecture they want serious focused time and they want to do the best work they can do. Mm. And they don't want to be out there being distracted, yeah. uh, talking about it. But 
on the flip side, if you look to Monique from Wawawa, I mean, she is a force of nature, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and she and and she's able to talk, you know, deliver great work. So the studio still delivers great work, mm. but she's also being able to have a voice about gender equity, about First Nations Australians, about the importance of kind of you know big ideas or clear conceptual approaches in in architecture. Yeah, so yeah, I think that there's two ways to approach it, and obviously Mon's you know an extreme extrovert. Yeah. So yeah, I think that some of it is personality, and I guess whatever works for you works. But I do think that if you've got something important to say, then we want to hear about it. You yeah. Know? Yeah, it's inter- interesting. I, I have had a couple of guests on the podcast that have said that about how they they've just decided to be quite honest and open about their views on certain things and 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 stuff that they really want to get out there, and they start to feel you know, I'm not going to be so worried about what are other architects going to think about it or how is this going to be received by people. And when when I've had guests talk about that on the podcast, I've gotten feedback from people listening going, oh, you know, that's really inspiring because I'm actually, I was actually quite scared of talking about sustainability or whatever it is because I'm worried that it might, you know, put off clients or whatever, just, just worried about that judgment. I think there's that introverted sense of what are other people going to think of me if I'm out there having an opinion on something. I, I do think a lot of architects, really worry about what other architects think of them, Dave. Yeah. You know, and, but the funny thing is that their customers and their clients aren't other architects. No. And I don't know whether a lot of other industries suffer that same sense of self-doubt or fear of criticism from their own colleagues, you know. So maybe some people just don't have anything to say, Dave. <laughs> yeah, that might be part of it. I mean, <laughs> you were talking about those earlier projects. You described them as kind of muddled, right, where they didn't really have that clear idea yet. And I just wonder if maybe a lot of studios are just, maybe they're just in that muddled phase and they're going to clarify those ideas at some point. I wonder in terms of, um, I think I think there's this scene that comes up sometimes amongst other guests is this idea of how do you actually clarify your ideas and get them clear enough that you can communicate them to other people, both in how you design things, but also how you talk about your work. It's something that people really struggle with. And there's this worry that comes up sometimes of, you know, if I'm trying to control the ideas of this project in some way, uh, that might be kind of me exerting too much power over the client or being some egotistical architect. There's all these sort of fears and there's all this psychological stuff that tends to come up when people think about something as simple as going from a muddled project that doesn't really know what's going on with it to something that's just clear and makes sense. And it's, you know, you're, you're kind of developing your work as your, as your pro practice goes along. Do you think there's something in that in terms of that clarifying being an important step, just, just, just even something to focus on in and of itself, like having a clear idea of what you're about and what you're doing, maybe some reflection in that. The current gold medal winner is Sean Godsell. Yes. I spoke to Sean about five years ago and I was probably telling him about a bunch of self-doubt that I had and he said to me, you don't really start to know what you're doing as an architect until you're 40, Jeremy. Mm. Don't worry about it. It'll come to you, you know. So, I mean, that's interesting, right, coming from the gold medal winner. So there's something about just, you know, repeatedly trialling and failing. We hear it a lot from Silicon Valley, fail fast. Mm. This idea that with practice comes mastery. So I do think that architects get better with age. Yeah. I also think it's interesting, different architects have different approaches. Like obviously Sean's got a very clear idea about, yeah. you know, what he starts with is what he finishes with and, and he will he will fight for every nut and bolt and every decision in that all the way through. But I've worked on teams with Lions and ARM and watched how, and MCR actually, and watching these firms, like I watched 
I watched MCR once present to a client and we came up with, we presented one option to the client, like this is the design, this is the design, right? And then MCR presented and it was like 16 different schemes or <laughs> options. And they said, which one would you like? Like it was incredible. It was incredible. Yeah. Like a totally different approach, but it was this idea of, you know, just really the the lightning sketch idea of testing lots of different things and kind of, you know, bringing the client on a journey with them. And we've actually adopted some of that work in our own studio now. Keen to move on to Nightingale maybe, and because I think this will probably be your, you know, 10,000th interview about Nightingale. But I, I think you touched on something before we were speaking today, which was about how Nightingale, and it would be great if you could also just give the 30-second sort of elevator pitch of what Nightingale is for people who haven't heard of it. But um, but you're talking about how it's something that you're really trying to kind of not market it, not promote it in a way, kind of keeping it a little bit more under wraps. And yet it's just had this absolutely rapid growth to it as a brand. And now it's this super widely known thing. And everyone who's in the space, anybody who's in like, I think the construction industry is aware of Nightingale at this point. So um, just, yeah, maybe if you wanted to start with a little bit of an overview and then get into, I, I guess, like that that strategy of how it just kind of, or non-strategy of how it sort of took off like a rocket and now everyone's heard of Nightingale. Yeah, no problems, Dave. Do you mind if I backtrack a little bit? Please do. Let me talk about a couple of pivotal projects yeah. for us, mm-hmm. which eventually led to Nightingale. Mm. So we were doing houses in the backyard of, you know, of renovations in the backyard of houses in, you know, Fitzroy and North Melbourne, relatively unknown. And then in 2009, we'd done a house for a guy called Mark Dundon, kind of the king of third wave coffee in Melbourne. And um, he wanted to open a cafe in Carlton. And so we were looking at sites with him. And while that was happening, we looked at a tiny little 35 square metre space for him in Little Burke Street. And we had $50,000 in kind of two weeks for a fit out. And we worked pretty closely with him to build Brother Bub Boudin, which was, you know, like 100 chairs suspended from the ceilings on cup hooks and cable ties. And kind of you walk through this this forest of chair legs to go and get your coffee. Anyway, that, that became this staple. It was meant to be there for a year. It's been there for 20. You know, it's incredible. And then we went on to do... Uh, seven seeds for Mark the following year in, in Carlton, which was kind of the big brother to Brother Bubba Boudin. And um, he wanted to do both roastery and cafe. And it was the first time that it was done like that in Melbourne with the start of the third wave coffee. And then, you know, we worked with him about a roastery experience, an educational experience, but also a sustainability experience. So, you know, there were water tanks in there. So when it rained, you would see these polycarbonate water tanks, which were semi-transparent, filling up with water. Then you'd flush the toilet, take the water from the top row of tanks. The bottom row of tanks would be used to kind of cool the smoke as it came out of the top of the um, roaster. You know, the top of the building kind of had these awning windows, which would open up in the heat to ventilate that out. And it was very much an exercise in reductionism with not enough money in there. But um, lots of people kind of approached us after that project. And then the following year, we did a tiny retail fit out, 35 square metres in Melbourne Central in the basement. Like no, you, you would never have found it. And it was, a, it was a pop-up for three months. And we were watching what was happening with some of the other kind of pop-up stores in Melbourne Central, which was that a big international brand would do a pop-up. They'd finish three months later. They'd take everything they put it in the skip in the basement. You know, it's this incredible kind of cycle of waste. And so we did the entire pop-up out of recycled cardboard and made this whole kind of spatial experience, you know. And basically we built a kind of, you know, one to three scale model 
of a street shopping experience, like like literally like a doll's house out of recycled cardboard in this little shop called Lula May in the in the basement of Melbourne Central. Anyway, the thing went viral. And so and, and we we filmed it being assembled. So it got assembled, the whole thing got assembled in eight hours and we kind of stopped motioned it getting assembled. We put some stuff online and it went viral internationally. And then we had people emailing us from all around the world, like an ice cream shop in Brazil asking us to come and do an ice cream shop out of cardboard in Brazil. A gallery in Lisbon asking us to come and do, you know, an art gallery in cardboard. And we're like, people, we are not cardboard <laughs> architects. That was for a specific purpose. If you want to go and build your gallery, speak to a Lisbon architect. We're not coming to Lisbon to do, you know, this. So it was really fascinating to see the power of the internet with a big, clear idea and seeing that big, clear idea communicated clearly. And so about three years later, we finished um, this project called The Commons. The Commons was us at Breathe being frustrated about working with developers on buildings that were just not sustainable. And and so we'd had a, a series of falling outs with developers where we'd either resigned or been fired because, you know, we just wouldn't, we wouldn't back down on our values and we wouldn't produce something that we were not proud of. So we bought a site in Brunswick. We got some of our friends that were architects to kind of invest money in we got a, an impact investment company called Small Giants to come and kind of back the whole project at the at the end of it when it got tough. Um, and we built 24 apartments with no cars, minimum seven and a half stars, you know, and the idea was that this building would be car-free and carbon-free. And um, this was like in the middle of an industrial wasteland right next to a train station and it sold like hotcakes and it went bananas and after we finished the commons, all these people started writing to us. And we thought that at Breathe, we would use the commons as an educational tool. And so we opened it up through Open Houses Melbourne, through the Robin Boyd Foundation. We took hundreds of tours through it. We took every developer in the city through it. The idea was that we were going to get them to think differently about development and engage Breathe as their architects to, to do that for them. But after a couple of years, despite having taken like you know, maybe like 1,800 people through the building, the developers were seeing it as a blip on the radar rather than a potential trajectory. And so out of frustration, kind of two years later, uh, we bought the site across the road and I took four days off work and I sat down in my apartment upstairs in the commons. I locked myself down and I wrote what became the Nightingale Manifesto. And the idea was that we would do exactly what the commons tried to do, which was to build housing that was simultaneously sustainable that was affordable and that built community rather than kind of, you know, slowly ate away at it. But the big difference between the Nightingale model and the Commons was that it wouldn't be funded, it wouldn't be reliant on an impact investor like small giants, that we would democratise the capital and we'd get small mum and dad investors, other architects to invest in, um, and then that each architect would be in control of their own Nightingale project with this kind of, you know, peer-to-peer funding. So it was really the funding model that was the shift in Nightingale. It was meant to be totally kind of small-scale, independent. We would just share the IP to make it happen. But after we finished Nightingale 1, 57 people had written to us. So we had a waiting list theoretically of 57 people. Mm. And so part of the whole premise was to take to take everything out, right? So, And one of the things that I really hated about the development industry was the marketing, the display suite and the real estate sales and that it all seemed to be smoke and mirrors, not particularly transparent, um, and that so much money was spent on the sales and marketing, like more than they paid than the, than the developers were paying for the architects. And I had a real problem with that. So we decided that we were going to take all of the marketing and sales out of it and we we're just going to 
you know, communicate really clearly and honestly with the future residents. And so it was meant to be kind of, you know, non-marketed. That's that's the idea, I guess, you know. Anyway, we had, you know, 57 people had written to us. So we had a ballot for Nightingale One. There's 20 apartments. And so we sold all the apartments through a ballot in one day without having a real estate agent involved, right? So, and so we saved hundreds of thousands of dollars in estate agents' fees, which then reduced the cost of the project, which then in turn reduced the cost of people's housing. So it was really interesting that the idea was that, you know, that we would then scale Nightingale, but that there would never be a marketing spend, there would never be a display suite built, that there would never be a marketing budget, that there'd never be real estate agents. And all those savings from those things would then go to reducing the cost of the housing. And so Nightingale now has a, has a list of over 15,000 people. And I'm not saying that mm. all of those people want to buy Nightingale apartments, but it's a significant list. And in last year, Nightingale sold over $50 million worth of housing through ballots that were happening online. So it's been really interesting, the building of the Nightingale brand. And Nightingale, to be clear, is a not-for-profit yeah. organisation. So the housing is should be more affordable. Um, it's all carbon neutral. So it should be, you know, more sustainable. And it talks a lot about our community. So it should offer residents a better sense of connected community. Mm. And so you can see why that there's, you know, Nightingale has a unique selling proposition, I think. But what it has built is incredible, incredible trust with the broader market. And why has it been so successful, Dave? Mm. I, I don't know. But about a year ago, I saw a documentary on Netflix called Explained. You know, like they've got yeah. those little kind of, you know, 17-minute, you know, well-narrated, clearly articulated documentaries. And there was one on diamonds. Mm. And it talked about how De Beers had heaps and heaps of diamonds but, you know, way back when, I don't know, in the 30s or something, they put together this uh, scarcity principle where they um, would only release a few diamonds at a time with certificates of authentication so that the market thought that there was only a small amount of it. So there's something that happens when you've got more demand than supply mm. that, yeah, this scarcity principle kicks in and people seem to be, yeah, more attracted than that. Okay, it makes sense from a psychology point yeah. of view or something. Something seems really valuable and really coveted. I'm not exactly sure, Dave, why why it works. You know, I think that Nightingale One was an incredible building. Uh, it's a great community. All of the people that lived in there became kind of incredible advocates for the Nightingale project or the Nightingale experiment. But yeah, it's it's become 25 staff, you know, 500 completed apartments and mm. 500 more apartments in the pipeline. Yeah. So it's it's grown into something, you know, big with an international brand. I always try and put myself in the customer's shoes a little bit and think about, you know, I obviously as a consumer love Nightingale. If I was probably in the market for an apartment in Melbourne, that would probably be the first place I'd be looking. I'd be like, can I get myself a Nightingale apartment? It would probably be at the top of my list if that was what I was after. And then you go back and think, well, what what led to me actually forming that opinion about Nightingale, right? And I don't know if it's the exclusivity and then this is just me personally. I don't know if it's the exclusivity. I think it's the sort of, for me, it's kind of the authenticness and DIY-ness of the entire brand in a sense that, that <laughs> it just feels like, it feels like, um, you know, it's an industry where I, I don't feel like I necessarily trust uh, prop, multi-residential property developers as an average Joe on the street because, they're too slick, <laughs> a little bit too put together. 
And then you guys came along a little bit more rough around the edges with your sort of Squarespace website and your sort of we're gonna we're throwing some parties. And <laughs> the, that's, the Nightingale the Nightingale logo yeah. day was done was done by Mark NG, yeah. graduate architect at Breathe in 2014. And, it, and that's what right. that's what you know what I think the thing is, like you know, the reason I think a lot of people it stood out is obviously the project, the way that the buildings are designed is obviously very distinctive and very different, but the brand is distinctive and different because it was obviously Obviously done on a sort of a shoestring budget in-house by <laughs> the young architect on the Squarespace website. So I think I, I, for me, that feels like a factor because that makes me look at the building and go, the product that I'm being offered, I'm more likely to actually trust its origins, I suppose, in terms of I feel like, you know, when they're telling me certain things about, you know, these costs are being saved and all that sort of stuff, I'm more likely to believe it because of the way that this comes across, that it's a movement, it's very guerrilla, it's not this big corporate manoeuvre, it, it doesn't feel that way. So I don't know, that's my personal, you know, if I'm trying to examine where do I come from personally with thinking about Nightingale, that's what sort of sticks out to me. But I think the trust level is high, Dave, too, because and the great thing about it being a not-for-profit organisation is that we're not driven by shareholders for scale, right? We have no shareholders. Mm. We're not trying to make profit. There's no benefit for us to grow. So if someone doesn't want an apartment, that's fine. We just we just won't build one and we'll all kind of, you know, the team can work a little less hard, yeah. right? And what we really want is for people to go in there and to love it and to be happy, right? So we've got a lot of people moving from Nightingale 1 to Nightingale 2 to Nightingale Lansty as their families grow. Mm. It's a lot easier when you're not answering to a whole bunch of shareholders. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Have you seen attempts to sort of recreate a little bit of what you guys have done in 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 the rest of the industry but where it hasn't actually had that public I guess like that public reception to it yeah yeah okay no good good question Dave so when we finished the commons um we had a bunch of developers through and they thought wrongly that the success of the commons was based on an aesthetic that's that's what i'm yeah that's what i'm getting at i feel like they could come and go like let's let's produce some lookalike thing but full but full of profit margins and like whatever and see if we can sell it the same way the nightingale project sold and then let's see let's see what their wait list looks like <laughs> you know yeah so so we saw a couple of developers you know um putting like render rock on their plasterboard ceilings to make their plasterboard ceilings look like uh, look like concrete, putting engineered, you know, imported engineered floors down, trying to look like floorboards. And so from a render, if you kind of, you know, cocked your head halfway, it kind of looked maybe like the internal yeah. inter inside of the commons. And we saw that that stuff didn't work. What we saw that worked really well and which we're incredibly proud of, right, because if you think about we're trying to help influence, you know, positive change in the marketplace. And the challenging thing, I think that the Nightingale experience for me has taught me that I was dismissive of developers historically because I thought they didn't care. Mm. And what I realised is that development is largely shaped by bank valuations and the ability to secure um, debt finance for a project. And so if you think that your entire project will only be debt funded based on a valuation that a valuer can say, we understand how much this project will be worth when complete. If you're proposing something new, the valuer can't value it, right? He can only try and find something similar. And so we had massive valuation problems with the commons because they couldn't, they hadn't seen a car-free apartment building since like 19, you know, 54. <laughs> they hadn't seen something without air conditioning since 1996. They hadn't seen something with a shared rooftop laundry ever or you know that they when they think shared rooftop laundry they think laundry in the basement in a social housing you know project 
And so they, they, they couldn't imagine how to value it. So they valued it down. So it was very challenging for small giants to put together the funding gap for that. And so what, what I think Nightingale has helped the industry do is to prove the market that when you're building something that focuses on sustainability and community, it has inherent value, not just for the residents that live there, but come resale. So the residents that are reselling out of a project like the Commons are actually getting really good uplift uh, as opposed to a building next door that has basement car parking, air conditioning and, you know, a massive laundry in its apartment, for example. I mean, the biggest example of success story, I'd say, is Milieu, who are now B Corp certified, mm-hmm. uh, doing all of their projects are 100% electric. Like the, the project that we did with Milieu, so Breathe and DKO worked for Milieu on their Breeze Street project, mm-hmm. 55 apartments, uh, carbon neutral in operation, recycled timber floors, low carbon kind of interiors, connecting to an embedded network, buying 100% green power, residents get cheaper power, no carbon footprint associated with that power. So basically Milieu looked at Nightingale and said, what are all the good things that we can take and what do people still want? They still want the ability to have a car, they still want the ability to have air conditioning and they still want the choice of having a laundry. And so basically what Milieu did was to say, you can buy one of our buildings. It's designed really beautifully. And their point of differentiation is, you know, like, you know, high design, yeah. h- higher spec. And they said, you can buy an apartment. And if you want, you can also buy a car park as an optional extra uh, in a different, you know, it's $40,000. If you want air conditioning, you can also buy air conditioning. It's $9,000 mm. more mm. as an optional extra. If you want a laundry, you can have it. We'll make your living area two square metres smaller. Uh, you can pay $6,000 and you can have a laundry as well. And so they offered kind of the deep green Nightingale version in a beautifully designed building, or they offered a kind of lighter green version, specced up, but powered by 100% electricity, 100% green power. So, you know, Milieu were talking to that kind of next cohort up, you know, the next socioeconomic demographic up, doing it through a really good design lens. So, and then when someone like Milieu does it, we then see like the Banco Group, you know, with their East Brunswick Village, which they pushed that out to 7.5 stars. They changed their landscape to put a permaculture garden on the roof. Mm. So the 700 apartments that are now being rolled out in East Brunswick Village by Banco Group, you know, this is the first project I've seen by Banco Group that's seriously sustainable. I mean, it's still got gas in it, but it's a great move. And then in the rest of the marketplace, we've got Assemble that matches all of Nightingale's sustainability principles, 7.5 stars, 100% green power. They've got 20% affordable housing, um, but they've also got, I think, 20% social housing. So you would say that Assemble, funded by Australian Super, are actually doing incredible work on the social and affordable housing piece, like even better than Nightingale. Yeah. It's interesting that the version that you guys put out into the world initially was this sort of this idea that was a much more kind of a confronting idea in so many ways. You're talking about these things that hadn't been done for a long time. It's kind of in conflict with how planning was done, finance was done, architecture was like it was it's really, 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 really difficult. <laughs> And, you know, I think that's what it took, right? Because if you guys would have just done a sort of 1% more green apartment building, it would, I mean, nobody would have even found out about that. But it's, it's the slightly, I don't want to use the word radical, but the slightly more radical option where you were doing your own project, you were essentially your own client in a way, you and your investors, the other architects, you gave you that ability to take that risk 
and it was a really important risk. Do you think there's any other kind of category of project where maybe Breathe could take that risk again with a client on board? Or would this be something where you think, oh, you know, maybe we need to be our own client again in some capacity. Like we need to kind of, <laughs> it's, it's only going to be us that allows us to sort of put our entire reputations and careers on the line for one of these projects. Look, I think that the interesting thing for Nightingale, right, is that um, Tam and I, borrowed against our apartment at the commons to buy the site and so when the other architects and our other shareholders who were our friends came on board to fund that project they knew no one stood to lose more than tam and i Mm. so we believed in it deeply and we wanted to make sure it would succeed but obviously everyone else came and rallied to our side to help us make that possible i think it's really hard dave to try and be a revolutionary with someone else's money yeah you know, and if you think about trying to get money from a superannuation company or an investment committee at a superannuation company, I mean, they're happy to give you funds, but th- those funds are based on a risk-related return, you know, and basically the higher the risk, the higher the return. I think to be totally honest, you know, the stuff that Breathe is working on at the moment, the kind of more innovative stuff, we're self-funding. And I think that as we prove the model, you know, we'll get other people to come on with this, or if we lose our money, it'll be our money to lose and it'll be okay. I mean, the interesting thing for Nightingale, Dave, was that it was relatively unknown until um, we lost our planning permit. So we had, you know, Mm. whatever that was, (laughs) 2015. That's so true. It was all your drama with the councils and stuff that really like, it really blew it up. It was the the drama. And if you look at like our website traffic, the drama is what actually shone a spotlight on it. And what happened was that, you know, yeah, you're right, it, us building a zero-car building, we'd done it at the Commons, right? So, and it, and it was a massive, it won the National Award for Housing, the National Award for Sustainability. But when we went to do Nightingale, whatever it was, you know, three years later, we get a notice of decision from the council to grant a permit and then the developer next door objects and takes us to VCAT and says, no, you can't have a permit because you don't have any cars. Mm. And then we draw a very old member, you know, which happens at random at VCAT. So we, we draw a 72-year-old member who um, doesn't only say, no, you have to put some cars in. He's so affronted by the, by the idea of an apartment building not having cars next to a train line, next to a tram line, next to a bike path, next to a bus line, that he actually takes the permit office and in his findings he references that nothing, I'm just trying to, I'm, tr- I'm trying to paraphrase him here, nothing is more convenient than the private automobile, especially after the times of horses and carts and the bother with wheat and chaff and stuff. So I'm, <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, but there's, there's a paragraph where he talks about how cars are so much better than having to deal with horses and carts. Yeah. That's how old this guy yeah, yeah, was. Yeah. Anyway, the local media blows up, right? The age blows up, every, everyone blows up. And then the planning community... They're like, enough is enough. The legal planning community say this is outrageous, this is ridiculous, and then the architecture community goes bananas. So architecture media, design media, everyone just goes, this. Yeah. what is wrong with the world? Yeah. In a climate crisis when we lose a carbon-neutral building because there's not enough cars, you, you know, this is nuts. Yeah. Anyway, we get swamped with people from all around the country that write to us saying, what can we do to help? We've got architects in Darwin saying, how can we help you? We've got lawyers and QCs offering to represent us pro bono, you know, taking it to the Supreme Court, right? (laughs) And so when we go back to get the permit, we lodge for the permit again. And so when we go back to get the permit, we write to everyone who's written to us 
Look, we get 440 letters of support that go to the council. The council don't even know what to do with it. And when we go for the night of the vote, there's like 155 people there jammed into the council chamber all cheering for, for Nightingale yeah. to get a planning permit. The council's like, what's what's happening? Do we need security guards? It's, it's insane. Yeah. We never have people saying give a building a planning permit. We only have objectors saying don't give a building a planning permit. And it was, yeah, it was crazy. So it was both the worst thing that ever happened to Nightingale and the best thing that ever happened to Nightingale. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's, um, it, yeah, it is probably one of the best things that ever happened. That guy actually ended up propelling um, that councillor, ended up <laughs> propelling the project in a way that could have never possibly have happened without his help, which is, you know, somewhat ironic. But I think I think there's something there that, you know, you have this you have this really clear, really kind of, you know, revolutionary sort of idea, which is a simple idea, kind of no cars, but it it just like divided the nation for a, for a month or two there. <laughs> How ridiculous. How could you live without a car versus this other cohort going, hey, why should I have to have a car park if I don't want to have a car? Like that's, you know, the, the future... You know, Everyone had a had a point of view on it, and um, I, I love it. But it's also that you guys actually did, you know, you took on the fight, right? And and I, I think ended up. I mean, this is a marketing podcast, but it was an extremely good publicity moment for the project, for you guys, for you know establishing your brand. And it's really interesting. It's not something that you can sit down and go, okay, part of our go-to-market strategy of uh, launching our practice here or our project here is we're going to take on a planning authority or whatever. Like you can't, you can't plan for those sorts of things, but I guess it's how you guys handled it. Dave, Dave, just, just, just for clarity, yeah. when we got the VCAT ruling, taking the permit away Devastated. from us, I, I, I cried yeah. on the floor of the shower for two hours because I thought I had just lost my house and I thought I had just lost all of my friends and six Melbourne architects, all of their money, and I thought that the thing that I'd been talking about for two years was about to die. So, you know, um, and I couldn't look the Breathe crew in the eye for about a week. Like it was the most horrific thing. I could never have imagined that it would have been a great thing for the future of, you know, housing no, in this country. You wouldn't want to get, and you wouldn't want to go through it again. <laughs> would, no, would you? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We, we, we do need to wrap up soon, but that is kind of a question, I suppose, that, you know, you guys have sort of found your things that you, you want to advocate for. But I wonder if there's anything that ever crops up in your mind where you go, we've got a little bit on our plate as a studio. So maybe, you know, this 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 particular issue or this this idea or this architectural typology or something, you know, I could see that there's a lot of potential in that, but maybe we just don't have enough time on our plate to deal with that. But maybe somebody else will come along and do something in that area at some point. I just want business ideas off you, Jeremy, basically. So are there are there, are there any sort of other areas that have come up for you where you think, oh, you know, maybe there's something that somebody will do in that one day that could kind of have some, have some room for it? Yeah, sure. Oh, look, I think that, you know, there's obviously the big issue at the moment is about reconciliation. Mm. You know, we finally had a change of government. You know, Albanese opens his speech with a serious acknowledgement to country and talk about, you know, a serious engagement in reconciliation. We've got an Andrews government that looks like they're going to be re-elected in Victoria and they're talking about treaty here. So um, we've got an Institute of Architects which changed their constitution a couple of years ago to recognise First Nations Australians at the forefront and the centre of their constitution. So we're, you know, as a profession, we're a long way behind on this. And because of the genocide in Tasmania and the, like the devastation that was caused to the First Nations population 240 years ago, there's not much capacity to be able to help architects like us 
kind of step through good First Nations engagement. Like if you're trying to work with the Wurundjeri Council to work on a project in Brunswick, it's a month's long waiting mm. list. So when you look at people like Tanya Davidge in the architecture industry going to work at Green Shoot Consulting alongside Indigenous architects like Jeeva Greenway, or you look at architects like Sarah Lynn, mm. Lynn Reese working at JCB, I think that there's massive opportunity for architects, particularly First Nations architects, to actually build a really strong kind of consultancy and think about that now is the time, finally. My other big thing, Dave, is volume building. Mm. Like, you know, we've got an undersupply of housing here. Architects generally aren't involved in it. So I feel like that architects need to get engaged in the other 97% of housing, mm. you know, and um, we need to talk to everyone, not just those people with, uh, yeah. with, plenty, of, with plenty of capital yeah. and a nice beach house, you know. We want to be engaged in, in every part of the housing spectrum. So yeah, they're my they're my they're my two things that I'd like to see. Yeah, you know. So the possibly the the breathe X metric on collab or something like that is that the yeah it, 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 it's exactly, inevitable exactly. inevitable something like that right in terms of the volume <laughs> space. I better let you go, Jeremy. We sort of just touched on a whole bunch of different areas today, but do you have any kind of uh, I've, I've got about twenty things on my list that we didn't get to, but do you have any sort of final thoughts or anything that you just want to you know get out there before we finish off or didn't get an opportunity to really get off your chest today? Yeah, look, I, I, I would love. To to Dave, thank you. So um, to every architect, in fact, every professional, in fact, every human out there listening today, if you're in Australia, please switch to 100% green power. Even if you're with AGL or Energy Australia or Origin, one of the big three polluters, when you buy 100% certified green power, it forces them to invest in large-scale renewables. So don't take carbon neutral power, don't take carbon offset power, don't take smile power. Make sure it's certified green power independently audited. So that's what I'd ask every architect to do, Dave. Just everyone make sure. And and if you're an architect and you're working on any project, remember the only pathway to net zero is to electrify everything. So no more gas appliances. We've got to end our love affair with gas. It is a fossil fuel and you've got to get your clients off it. Okay, love it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks heaps, Dave. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. That was my conversation with Jeremy McLeod from Breathe Architecture. If you'd like to learn more about Jeremy, you can visit breathe.com.au or follow them on Instagram at Breathe Architecture. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.